Hi, welcome to the TechRooter Talks to podcast series. This is our first uh, podcast um, from TechRooter. TechRooter is a brand new business set up last month to solve a number of challenges in the tech recruitment industry. Set up by myself, my colleague Richard Gell and Max Blake, where previously we helped set, help scale up organizations like Babylon Health, G Research, Shipstead, 5AI. And now we're here trying to solve tech recruitment on a on, on, on a pretty significant scale. Part of our strategy is to launch this podcast series where we talk to industry leaders across the pod, product and tech space to get some really valuable insights. Today, we are speaking to someone I worked really closely with at Shipstead, uh, Christian Michio, who is a well-known product leader who spent many years at Shazam as the early founding team, also helped Google launch key features on Gmail, Google Maps, worked in a bunch of leadership roles and founded his own business. So welcome to Christian. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Cool. So I guess it'd be good to hear a little bit more about your story as a, as a tech product innovator, entrepreneur in the industry. How, how did you get into the tech and product space to, to begin with? Uh, yeah, so that's a that's an interesting one. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those kids uh, born in the 70s, discovered computers in the 80s. And, uh, and it was love at first sight, basically. And so I uh, went through, uh, you know, owning a Commodore 64, uh, then coding on uh, an Amiga. And so, uh, you know, you learn coding from magazines. There wasn't really a lot of internet to go by. Uh, and then I automatically ended up uh, coding. For me, it wasn't even, in, you know, it wasn't a question. I, I just ended up uh, coding as a, as a, doing computer science and um, and coding commercially. And uh, and then I guess I was I got lucky at some point. Uh, because we uh, were in touch with the, we got put in touch with the founders of Shazam. Uh, there was three engineers um, uh, out of Munich, actually, where I was working in Munich on commercial software. And uh, I saw the first thing I saw was the demo. So I saw the demo uh, from the one founder who uh, designed the algorithm. And to be honest with you, you know, it's one of those things where you think, okay, this is rigged. It has to be rigged. You know, it's impossible <laughs> that this actually. Uh, works and so you try to get a grasp of the mathematics and you think does this really work um, and so so you know the, the I caught the bug I caught the startup bug the entrepreneurial bug I think at that point and um, and I just sold my car I uh, let go of my flat and I moved to London for uh, you know to join Shazam on their first uh, funding round so I was employee number you know whatever two three or whatever the the people who, who signed up on this first wave of, uh, of financing so the interesting experience um, was that we had to solve a lot of problems on the technical front. So I was still on the software engineering side at that point. You know, I was uh, one of the, the, the tech guys coming on board to build the system. And the, uh, the interesting challenges were that, uh, you know, there were, there, were, there were some challenges that are not challenges anymore today. You know, for example, how can we get two servers in the data center? Well, there wasn't anything to rent back then. You could just, uh, you know, put your credit card out and rent uh, two, two machines on Amazon. Um, you had to go build the stuff yourself, right? Then there was the other problem where we thought, right, Shazam is is not a recognition engine per se. It's actually a comparison engine, right? So it needs the data to be stored somewhere. And so you need to fill a database with uh, music. So you need to fill, uh, you need to read the music, uh, get the digital fingerprint out of the music, and then it's stored and it can be compared against whatever's coming in from your real time, you know, your phones, or you're somewhere in a cafe. Uh, and you stream uh, the sound, and then we find the music in there. So, so given that it's a comparison engine, we needed a music database and and one that we could refresh every week with uh, uh, with with music. And so, one of the the interesting uh, numbers from back then is that 
there was 200 pieces of music being published per week in London, which was really interesting for us when we were researching, you know, what kind of bandwidth do we need, do we need to support in terms yeah, of... Yeah, because, uh, because something like that, where you're trying to build a catalog of, of music, essentially a music library, like how do you start? Do you focus on one city, one region? Do you focus on a particular genre? Because yeah. it's obviously such a big problem and you can just get just wowed and amazed by the problem space. And exactly. So, so we start... Build. Yeah, so we started with London and we started with uh, what we could get our hands on through publishers. And uh, so we, we had a huge back catalog uh, as well and, and all the current pop, uh, you know, very popular stuff, pop, uh, funk, uh, hip hop, whatever's whatever was on Vogue in 2001 and two. Uh, we, had, uh, we had a really good catalog by launch, uh, but that's what we focused on. And so we had a deal with, uh, you know, some, some publishers, some uh, distributors, some, some different companies that had CDs going through. And we literally had to read CDs and create digital fingerprints from all the music and enter the metadata from uh, the covers. So, so you know, people would type, type up the artist, type up the title of the song while the CD was being encoded. Oh wow! So you were actually digitizing CDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we had to. So we we basically uh, could not find a digital database that existed in a format mm. that we needed. And, and how did the product idea get created? Was this idea already in place when you got there or did you actually help flesh out that idea as a product manager? Or, so, yeah. so the idea was from uh, the founders. So this idea existed uh, and they'd been, you know, researching this for a while. So one of the founders, um, so there, there are four, there are four founders such as I am. Three of them are uh, more on the business side, one of them on technical side. And so they together were uh, the originators of the idea and the algorithm uh, to, to, you know, to solve, to, to find a, a piece of music amongst millions of pieces of music. And so they had the, the first technical prototype going, the idea and the technical prototype going, and they were just fundraising when, when I met them, basically. Mm. So I jumped on board the, the, the already existing idea. And I guess that must have been a fascinating journey, those first three years of a business so early that now obviously got acquired by Apple and is such a well-known, established it was. unicorn out of the London. It, it was. Uh, <laughs> it was, I'll be honest. When I joined Zam, uh, you know, even, even your family tells you, hey, uh, you know, it's great that you're doing this adventure while you're young. Uh, but, you know, we have a room back home in case something goes wrong, you can always come back. <laughs> and so... So the, the amount of uh, trust that people throw at you is not exactly enormous when you're uh, when it's a completely unknown company. So people now say, you know, with hindsight, they say, yeah, hey, awesome. But imagine it's four guys in a meeting room uh, and who are telling you, yeah, we're going to build this, but it's not built yet. And uh, and yeah, it's not a known name. We have this name, but, uh, you know, we think it's great, but it's not a brand, right? It doesn't exist. So I think the perspective of joining a team that is absolutely at the start uh, is something where where you need to be sure of what you're doing, right? You need to be sure that this is something you want to do, and not uh, you know, and, and enjoy it, right? And so, um, because a lot of people are going to tell you with the early stage, especially uh, that, oh, why don't you go for a you know regular salary? Why do you do this? Blah blah blah. So, um, you know, if you're young, it's a good opportunity to do it. If you don't have a, a burn rate yet, like kids in school or something. Yeah, so maybe um, you've got to be committed to the space that you're going into. It's not just a startup for the sake of startup, because nowadays you see a lot of people wanting to work in startups just because it sounds cool. Yeah, so I interviewed uh, several people, even when I did my own company, who said, uh, you know, particularly one I remember said, yeah, I want to move to London. I said, okay, great, you know, I need people in London. I do backend. I'm like, yeah, great, I need a backend guy. And uh, the, the salary I could pay was a certain number. And he says, oh, wow, I mean, that's what's written on your website, mm -hmm. you know. 
Uh, I said, yeah, that's what's written on the website because that's what I can pay. <laughs> and so then he said, uh, well, but, you know, I've interviewed with a bank and they're paying me double. And I said, yeah, mm. okay, so, you know, be happy at the bank and uh, enjoy your life. And um, and he wanted basically me to extend the salary. And I said, but I can't. I, I literally can't. I'm a startup with a certain amount of funding. The whole th- runway is, you know, two years and it will only work out if if I can pay that salary, which is the price you pay when you go to startups is that, uh, you know, you don't earn as much as the banks, but the work is much more exciting. Um, of course, so, and, and so, so there are these trade-offs, yeah. right? When you when you when you when you think about where to go as a job, there are these trade-offs. Yeah, and and the learnings you take from a startup, because obviously, and and I'm in in this space of hiring where we're having to battle against where people want to go work in a startup to take those learnings, but then they're countering yep. it against having an offer at a more established company, which is what 20, 30% more higher. And it's that realization of, well, if you go to this early stage startup, the learnings you're going to get there for the first year or two years, your career trajectory from going into an early stage startup versus a more established business where you become a cog in a wheel, it's two exactly. different, two different yep. spectrums. Exactly. So I was 27 when I joined Shazam. Um, and what was interesting is all the problems we had to solve. So we had to create a music database and not even we're not even talking about something that's there and you just need to do a little bit of work. We had to figure out how to do it, right? We didn't know if we could get CDs. We didn't know if we could build machines and, and encode them. We didn't know if it would work out that we had people typing up the names while they were uh, encoding it. So, so we had no idea. Uh, the, other, the other piece is that the, the you know, iPhone, for example, came out in 2007. So nowadays, everybody's used to use Shazam through an app. But at the time, we didn't have an app. So there was only you know, phones or, or feature phones, as they call it. But all you could do is basically call a number and, and the music would be recorded. But we didn't know how to pick up a phone. We didn't know how to pick up a phone call. So we figured it out, right? We, we used the same systems as uh, banks were using. So when you call somewhere and the phone gets picked up and it says, hey, uh, hello, welcome to blah, blah, blah. Press one for this, press two for this. And so we literally used the same systems and, uh, and recorded sound, ran it through our crunch, digiting, uh, crunching and you know, uh, digital fingerprinting and then compared it to the database. And uh, that's how we did it. Uh, then we learned how to send SMSs, et cetera, et cetera. So we had to basically figure it out. And so if you're, um, uh, you know, if, you're, if you're quite young and you're learning, this is incredible. So at the end, you're capable not just of figuring out the technology, figuring out a particular language or you know, figuring out optimization in one particular setting, but you're actually uh, able to put together systems from scratch that you did not know you could. So you start thinking outside of the box. You start thinking, how are we going to, you know, communicate with these systems over there? What are these systems going to do exactly? How can we make it robust? What are the usual uh, failing points in in our whole, you know, architecture? If we have 10 different things that are happening in the system, we have these that are, you know, we need to solidify them. How can we do that? How can we make sure that this always responds to the user in a given amount of time, you know, within the 20 seconds? And that there's no bottlenecks as you grow, right? And so there's so many different things that you learn um, that definitely the experience is extremely valuable. Yeah. Um, it's that innovation, right? Where you're having to figure out the entire ecosystem. You're not just building a new feature and exactly. just launch it. It's yeah, exactly. So so if you go to a big commercial company, which I did at the start, the the it's ext- what's extremely valuable there um, is that you have more guidance. Is that your your scope of work is automatically a little bit more restricted because you work on one feature. You work on one dialogue or you know whatever it is that the first thing that uh, that you get on, on board with but the interesting bit there is that you get uh, more senior people who are around who you can learn from so there's uh, there's a little bit more comfort in that sense because you have uh, people that you can lean on you have uh, you know people you can go ask you can just get up from your desk and go ask someone hey what about this what do you think of that um, it's much simpler right so so it's less daunting as a challenge so it depends what you want I mean personally I went for the first uh, three years 
uh, two years, sorry, through a commercial company where I learned a lot about uh, big architectures, about big apps that are working on different systems, communicating, uh, you know, big uh, big systems with overnight uh, interest rate calculations, which today is very quick, but used to be a thing back then. Mm. Um, yeah, and so so you know, you have more guidance on the startup, you have more challenge, but you have uh, somehow if, if you if you like that, you have more satisfaction and you learn faster. Uh, you may not learn as in a structured in a structured way, but you learn uh, a lot more things. Yeah, I would so, say. So, 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 how successful did Shazam get? How how big did they get in terms of a size? Until yeah, so by, by the time you, you you left. By the time I left, uh, it wasn't very big in user numbers because it was very early stage. Uh, but we had, uh, for example, I think we had more than a hundred thousand CDs in the system. Um, so it, it was a sizable thing, right? But uh, the the real takeoff in you on the user front. Uh, from Shazam was when the iPhone came out. So yeah. um, the iPhone came out and a good friend of mine, Rahul, built the first uh, iPhone app for Shazam um, as, a, as a launch product uh, for the iPhone and it, uh, it just took off from there. So the only thing that Shazam was missing was a good user interface and a button that you could put on the, on the, the, the home screen. Yeah. And, and your role throughout this was, was on the tech side because obviously then you pivoted to becoming a product manager or, or did that happen in, in yeah. Shazam? No, that didn't happen. So in Shazam, I sort of transitioned automatically because we didn't have, uh, in 2001 to three, we didn't have product managers per se here in Europe at least. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, we, we had to take all the decisions. And so we started to research, how do we do the user interface? You know, how do we, do we speak to users? You know, do we say hello? Uh, you know, do we, do we play a sound, for example? Then how do we get the user to understand that they can go online after they got an SMS? Because it was an SMS at the time. How could we tell them, and you can now go online and see the history of your, uh, you know, the Shazam tags that you did. And how can, can we point them to that? How can we then connect with, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a link to Amazon, for example, to go buy the music? And uh, how can we do all that, right? So we started researching about user friction, user testing. We tried different experiments. Um, so, so I got into this whole, how can we make the product the most, you know, the, the, the easiest possible for the user? And, and with the most satisfaction in the least amount of time. And so, um, so I got into this whole, you know, iteration, researching, optimizing. And so that's when then I decided, uh, you know, I should, I should try and go uh, do product management uh, because I really want to get into the, the decision side of things and, and planning out and researching and figuring out how we can make the product successful. So that's, that's how I, was, uh, I mean, it's, then transitioned. It's, it's interesting what you mentioned now back in 2001, that, that, that space where in Europe, product management itself wasn't even a defined role. Um, I guess it's good to talk about that evolution of now product managers being critical in any tech startup or, or tech scale up this, I guess the product management kind of role and vacancy amount has just grown so much in, in, in the UK over the yeah. last couple of years. I mean, back then when companies didn't have product managers, who, who made these types of decisions? Because it sounds like at Shazam, you had that unique opportunity of getting involved in making those decisions <laughs> whilst being a techie. So at Shazam, we were lucky because we were all of us very, very passionate about the product. So we had extremely good discussions and, uh, you know, a lot of heated discussion late into the night about what we should do. Uh, so we we're, were quite lucky. But I think in general, um, you know, let's let's not look back too much because I think the, the reason product managers exist and, and that it, it grew so fast as a, as a profession is because there's a certain there is a reason for them to be to exist. Right. There's a reason for product management to exist. And um, I think the. You know, there was a, there was a certain lack of that. So, so just to explain very briefly how it was is that a lot of the times the tech team got stuff thrown at them. You know, a little mm -hmm. bit like, hey guys, you know, code yeah. this, 
um, and I'm, I'm exaggerating, right? But uh, but it was a little bit in that in that direction. And the decisions on product, uh, the, the high level ones, if you were in a bigger company, uh, would be taken by uh, either marketing or uh, business strategy. And so uh, there would be a combination of marketing, uh, you know, knows about the customers. Uh, bi- uh, mar- um, sorry, sorry, business strategy knows about the business, the cash flow, and so you would get the requests. Co- coming right and so if you hear uh people having pain discussions around oh my god don't throw requirements at me again uh that's probably where it came from is that we had a a whole list of requirements coming our way but there was no um you know there was was no consistency thinking there was no let are we doing this correct thing for the strategy are we going in the right way is that a very sensible packaging are we maybe you know too confusing for the user? Are we not? Uh, so a lot of a lot of thinking of product thinking that goes into the products nowadays did not uh, exist in a very formalized way. So yeah. when I switched to Google, so I was lucky enough to to, to get a product management job at Google. Um, it was actually amazing to see how it already worked in California and how advanced it was compared to what we were doing. Uh, so that that was you know that was the 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 a, a moment I'll never look back on either. You know, same as joining Shazam, joining Google was awesome. Uh, and it just it just opened the doors to uh, to a lot of more to a lot more formality, a lot more procedure around how do you do proper user testing? How do you take away bias, for example, from the way you're asking questions? How do you ensure that the user is focused on the action and not on what you're telling them? Um, and you know, just a glimpse, right, on user research, for example, which which was very very uh, eye-opening to me. And a lot of other things and product management as well. A lot of aspects of the job that I did not know were formalized like that. Um, you know, which which was great. It was a, a great moment to to see this. And I think um, the last ten years, then ten twelve years, have been uh, extremely good for product management. I think there's a lot of structure now around the the what the job is, what the role is. There's a lot of documentation. There's a lot of you know networks and events you can go to in London. You can go to Product Tank. You can go to different product meetups. Um, and there's an understanding that you're not there just to shuffle uh, tickets around or that you're there for, uh, you know, sort of as a project guy, but you're there actually to uh, uh, work hard and spend your time to try to improve the product and make it successful for users. And, and it's, it's probably worth talking about that distinction between, because you still see many companies now hiring product managers, product owners, technical project managers, project managers, there's still a lot of different job titles, job descriptions yeah, being yeah. thrown around. Whereas when you're building a software engineering team, it's pretty straightforward. You're hiring a, a developer or an engineer who yeah. can do X, Y, and Z, language, frameworks, separate. But within that kind of business project product stage, I guess from your experience, why are there so many different distinct roles? Do they actually serve different purposes? Yeah. Can they be merged into one? Yeah, so so there's, there's a bunch of things. So one of the things that is very logical, for example, uh, is that if you have a product that is consumery, that is, you know, end consumers, it's, it's user interfaces, mobile apps, uh, different aspects, and you have a product manager, and then you have a UX design, UX research team, you have engineering development, you have, uh, you know, DevOps, uh, the, the whole stack, you're fine, right? So, so this makes sense. Then, for example, if, you're a, a, if your product is an API or one of your products is an API, then generally... It makes no sense to put somebody there who has absolutely no experience, for example, coding, right? Or, or at least uh, having used have used APIs. I mean, how would somebody know if the API whose audience are programmers? How how would they know if the API is good? How, how would they know if it's well done? If it's exactly what people need? How would they make sense of the feedback? You know, if you get feedback from developers, for example, telling you, hey, you know, the sequence of calling your API is a quite 
annoying actually because we always have to do this thing. We lose two seconds here. We lose this. We we need it for the our login page. It needs to be faster. It need, maybe you can disconnect it and do two small calls, right? Whatever it is, um, you know, if if you don't have any sort of technical affinity, how will you? How will you be, even if you want to, how will you be able to make sense of all that? So in that case, people came up with this title that, for example, would be technical product manager. Um, so anyway, however you call it, uh, the, the, the goal is to have a little bit more understanding of, of what the technology is. I think in general, the titles are, are younger in product than they are in, for example, software development. So it's, it's a little bit more wishy-washy yet still. Um, but there, is, there are certain areas, like the one I mentioned, that are a bit more defined. I think the one that's currently uh, a little bit in flux is is product. You mentioned the word product owners, right? Mm. Uh, so product owners and product managers. I think that's a little bit. Um, it depends on the company you talk to, because product owner originally was a, a role in Scrum uh, that came out of Scrum, and you you had a product owner that was responsible for making sure, uh, you know, that the flow's right, that the momentum is going, that we are very clear on what we're doing, um, and then there's a product manager, and so. Some companies now hire product owners as almost product managers. And I think, you know, the jury's out on what's better. Me, I, I guess I'm a bit more old school in that sense because I think in terms of, of, of you know, apart from, from now, I'm, I'm, I may get killed by several people for this, <laughs> but um, in, in terms of product, you don't own anything as, as the product manager. If you're the person who is there to make the product successful, which means you're going to talk to sales, you're going to talk to user support, you're going to uh, devise user research to find out what people are thinking about the product and how they're using it. You know, if, if you're, you're going to look at the data, you're going to dig into the, the usage patterns. If you're, you know, the person who wants to make the, the product successful, then, um, you know, you don't really own it because if the CEO walks by and tells you, hey, I need that button moved left, then you're going to say, well, but I think my professional opinion is that, you know, it shouldn't because here's why on the right, the button is more successful, will be better for our users. And if the CEO still goes, yeah, but I don't care, I want it left. Well, you know, what choice do you have? So, so of course, you know, you have the wrong CEO because you should have a CEO that listens to you, <laughs> ideally. But the point is that there's lots of other people who are actually owning the thing. And you're not just, just you know, you're an owner of a, of a sub thing, but you don't have ultimate decision on this. And product manager, I think, is more accurate because you're the product manager of... Uh, uh, you're the manager of that product, you shepherd it, and you take input from all the sides, you organize everyone in the best you know, best way that you know and that you can find, um, with, you know, with, with everybody telling you how it's best done. So you have to orchestrate all of this. Uh, you know, one good, um, one good analogy I've heard was, um, you're like the, the, you're like the captain of, a, of an aircraft carrier, you know, so, mm. so the, the general is your CEO and he says, hey, uh, I want your aircraft carrier to go to that Mediterranean now to do these kind of, uh, you know, support missions, whatever. And then you're orchestrating the planes, the supply chains, the the stuff for cooking, the you know everything else, the fuel supply chain, whatever. And you're orchestrating everything to be the the you know to to satisfy all the the tasks that you have, all the goals that you have, and be successful at it. Uh, but you're not the ultimate owner of the thing. And so I think that that's why product manager was actually pretty accurate. I think as a title. Um, but I think I think the to to wrap it up, right? We could discuss this for for ages. Mm. But to wrap it up is that. It depends on the businesses. Some businesses are retail. Some businesses are technical. You know, there's APIs and very technical backend. Some businesses are uh, consumer finance. And so every one of those businesses, the product manager needs to be doing slightly, you know, slightly different uh, aspects of the job. So you, certain aspects are the same. So you have to develop, you have to do clean, uh, you know, customer approach and finding out what works and what doesn't make your product successful. 
work with a company, make sure the communication is flowing, you know, everything that a product manager is, is supposed to do. But uh, you have a very different uh, industry, right? Different vertical, different uh, use cases. So some have affinities, some don't. For me, for example, you know, fashion is not so much my thing. To go to retail for me would be not very useful because I wouldn't, my heart would beat for it. So, you know, I don't think I'd be very successful at it. Uh, but it's interesting that, that the, the, you, you, you're absolutely right in the sense that the titles are still a bit more in flux. Is I think it's still because the, the organizations are quite different and different businesses, uh, uh, you know, bring different organizations with them. And so yeah. I have, for example, I'm talking to a company right now that does, um, they, they have very big clients. And so they have this big thing where, uh, you know, it's a small company, they have very big clients. So you have to take a lot of care about every one of these clients. You have to spend a lot of time with them, with their development teams of, you know, uh, running pilot projects, installing software, running, uh, releasing the next version release management. And so there's a lot of this work being done. And so the product managers are doing half product management and half project management because the company is still not big enough to have dedicated project managers or dedicated, uh, sorry, and dedicated product managers. So you would have, you know, product managers and client, uh, uh, you know, strategic partnerships, let's say, who would bring back some feedback from talking to the clients. But the company is so small because they're, they're uh, you know, quite early stage startup. that You have to wear many hats. They have to wear many hats. And so so they are in this situation where as a product person, they cannot sit back and relax and do some free thinking because they always have five to-dos that are urgent that mm. same day because they need to deliver this to the client, right? So it's it's interesting how you get into these situations where uh, there's there's still a little bit of, of, of tension around all of this and a little yeah. bit of... of I guess it'll shake down in the next five to 10 yeah. years as well. So, 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 so really it's about focusing on the business problem you have as a company and what it is you're trying to build and do. And then you work back what, it, what type of structure you need rather than following some kind of framework of saying, well, this is how we're going to innovate. We're going to have product managers who do yeah. X, Y, and Z. You need to work off kind of what your current requirements are. Yeah, exactly. And you need to see what stage you're in. You know, is it the stage where um, are you uh, the famous, uh, you know, stages? Are you zero to one, for example? You know, are you in complete bootstrap? Are you in growth mode? You know, do you do you have a product market fit, and are you in growth mode? Um, so, so different people have different skills. You know, I'm, and I may not be good at everything. I may not be good at uh, zero to one. I may not be good at one to ten. I may not be good at one to hundred. But I may be brilliant at one hundred to a billion. You know, for mm. example. So it's different people at different stages that can help you. Uh, they, they, you know, for startups, for example, they tell you famously, get your advisors according to the stage you're at. So don't get an don't get an advisor, for example, from a massive corporate to help you grow uh, at the start to bootstrap, right? To find product market fit, because they will be able to help you with connections. They will be able to help you grow afterwards. But if they've never done themselves a phase of, you know, having to find product market fit, you'd be better served with uh, with advisors who actually have done that already, who can help you try this. Have you looked at that? What about this? You know, and, and so explore different avenues to actually, sorry, uh, find a product market fit. So it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's still in flux and it's very much dependent on what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be great to talk a little bit about Google because Google's obviously, I guess, an amazing company, built exceptional products, really transformed, I guess, the web experience, everything from Gmail, which you worked on, Google Maps, and even now at Tecruta, we're actually using Google Pixelbooks, um, which obviously, when you look at the uh, price and the technical spec, actually, Google Pixelbook seems to be coming out on top, although we're getting a few little teething problems with uh, downloading Skype and so on. Um, but kind of going back to, 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 to Google, um, what, what made Google so unique in its structure and approach that cultivated such great product innovation from from your few years that you you spent there 
Yeah, so uh, many things. I think way too many to to list them all. But I think <laughs> I think there's a there was a big drive to do things the best you could. So um, you know, don't let yourself be held back by uh, too many constraints. You know, try first to come up with something really different. Try to come up with something that. You might think at first, oh, this is too much processing power. This is too much memory. This is too much this. But what if you could, right? What if you actually mm. didn't have that, that constraint? Think outside so, the boundaries. So, th yeah, I mean, why are there boundaries, right? So, yeah, there will be boundaries eventually. But why don't you just cook up a, a use case first and then see, uh, uh, you know, and then see if, uh, discuss it and see if it can be done. Um, I think that's that's one of the bases of it. The, the, the other thing is... Uh, the the engineering rigor, the so product management and engineering rigor that Google put to everything uh, was quite something to look at, right? So um, the code uh, would never be uh, checked in unless somebody else looked at it. So there was already you know peer reviews for everything uh, back in two thousand uh, you know six when I started. It was already all established. You would not be able to launch unless your code scaled to a thousand machines, uh, and that wow. would be tested beforehand. So there would be uh, the DevOps team, you know, um, which uh, would run your code and literally throw it back at you if it didn't scale correctly and if it started using too many resources and say, nope, got to go back to the drawing board because, uh, you know, as of here's the here's the behavior as you, as we scaled it. And there you start to have bottlenecks. And so you have to go back. So you would literally have a lot of um, a lot of structure around this that will help you come up with, you know, good software and then very good quality. Um, and so. Uh, so that was interesting. There would also be, for example, one of the f the, the, the famous "eat your own dog food." You know, the, the, just a sentence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but basically, we'd use the software internally ourselves. And so, uh, you know, if you think teething problem are what you what you think a teething problem now, uh, the the first versions of everything were were quite basic. And so we use them internally, and that helped them make them better. Um, then we launched them to a certain number of trusted testers. Then it became even better, and then you you gradually launch it to everyone, uh, you know. And, and it's it's in a pretty pretty solid state by the time it goes out. Yeah, it's um, also the culture as well because I've seen it in other companies who who've tried to follow that mindset of uh, eat your own dog food and try to get people internally to download the app, to use the service, to critique it, to give feedback. But sometimes it can be like you're pulling teeth out because the, the company, and maybe this is, goes back to the talent strategy of you need to hire people that are completely vested and have that really am, real ambition exactly. to, 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 to fix the company's problems as opposed to, hey, I've just got a job just for the sake of work. Exactly. So, so you're right. So a framework will never actually solve your problem, right? You can set up whatever framework you want. If it feels like you're imposing, if it feels like the person... If the person feels like you're you're slamming this and and they tell their friends in the evenings, you know, like, oh my God, my company's forcing me to use the product, then, you know, the question is why are you working at that company if you don't think the product is worth it? So hey, you know, fair enough, it's a job, I get it. Uh, but uh, if you as if you're on the other side of the fence, so you're the company, and you want people to be on your team who are motivated, who are great, who are you know problem solvers, who are looking for solutions and looking for a way forward. Um, and looking, you know, to 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 extend the boundaries, to to push the limits, then you actually need to work on your hiring a lot. So you need to work, to have in place um, a hiring procedure that tests that, right? So so I know, for example, for so for engineering, I can't really really speak about it, but um, you know, for for product management recruiting, for example, uh, at Google, which which I did quite a bit, is we were looking for people. We were looking at what they would do, right? What would you actually do here? And we had these these cases where people came in and then got a bit frustrated because they said, well, look, I've done so much in my life. Here's my resume. Why are we not talking about this? And the answer would be, well, your resume is great. It got you here, right? Same as me. Uh, but I want to know what you're going to do. And so you would literally have some people who would 
just jump at the occasion and and for one hour, you know, fill the whiteboard, the wall next to it, and come up with all sorts of stuff. And there'll be other people who who you know wouldn't actually in a in a framework that is yeah here's a whiteboard you can do whatever you want no limits and some other people don't thrive in that environment and so so in your in your um in your recruiting in your recruiting process you need to be make sure that you have explicitly steps and uh for people to test the sort of uh motivation test the the how do they do they approach problems do they like exploring do they like solving problems do they like trying new things and how do you actually test all of that, right? So you need to have a framework in place uh, explicitly. It's, it's, Otherwise, it's taking people away from kind of their past achievements and talking about I've done X, Y, and Z, worked in X, Y, and Z industry to actually dig a bit deeper on their mentality it, and their approach and their problem-solving mindset. Exactly, and so so whatever level, whatever seniority you're at, if you're, uh, you know, it, it, the 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 goal of a company like Google and Facebook and anything else is to get people on board who are going to change things, right? Who are going to make an impact. Mm-hmm. And not people who will continue their career, so to speak, but actually what will be the impact that that person will have. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. No, this is, this is, uh, this has been a great, a great session. Hopefully we've got a lot of really good business, uh, business and product and tech insights. Um, so it'd be great to hear a little bit more about what you're doing, what you're doing now. Um, yeah. If, so if you, yeah. Ironically, uh, you know, you just started your business. Ironically, uh, I had my last day at my last company last week. Uh, the company decided to change strategies, so they decided uh, that a whole bunch of stuff they're doing, um, you know, they should do something else instead. And so, um, so I'm now actually jumping into uh, helping other people with product. Uh, the idea being that the uh, you know senior product leaders are uh, expensive and there are not that many in the market. On the other hand, um, you know, a lot of people would like a little bit of, of more senior product uh, thinking. As you said earlier, right, you said mm. a lot of the, the titles, for example, why is it that it's still a bit, uh, you know, a, a little bit changing, a little bit not super defined? And the reason is exactly that, right, is that a lot of companies don't have somebody who's done product for 10 years. And so so how I thought, how can I combine that? How could I could I find because there is a market gap, but how could I find a way to make it work uh, pragmatically? So. I'm going to work with companies on a basis of, you know, two days a week or, or three days every sprint to help internally the product team. Because obviously nobody will give you the product ownership if you're not, not internal, right? Because it's a bit different than, than you know, just contracting for, for writing code or for designing something. So, so nobody would want the ownership of the product to be external, but they'd like, the, they'd like some input about the product. So um, I've had a lot of chats with people and there seems to be a market gap in uh, coming in a very uh, part-time basis for product. So instead of going to a company for two months in a block, I will go uh, help companies over a period of, you know, three months, four months, five months, whatever it is. Uh, anything from vision to strategy to converting that into a roadmap to making sure your organizational, you know, your organizational uh, map is is actually adapted to what you want to launch, making sure that you um, have then the right behaviors in terms of, product hygiene, you know, how are, how are your targets set? How's your design process going? How's your development process going? How's product basically orchestrating all that? And is it working fine? All the way to, uh, you know, how, what, what kind of targets do your product managers have? What kind of motivation there to help you um, become a much better engine, you know, have a much better engine at producing software that's actually valuable to customers, right? To have more impact. And so, so that's the idea so far. So help uh, people a few days every sprint 
uh, over time, depending on what what the needs are. Obviously, you can only find that out once you talk to people. But that's what I'm going to do now um, yeah, in the awesome. in the coming so, uh, so, months. So it's taking all of your experience from Shazam, Google, the the, the founding of your own startup, which we, unfortunately we didn't get a chance to talk about, but we had so much. Um, insights and taking all of that experience and essentially productizing it and going into different businesses and giving him a little bit of that kind of insight on how should they solve problems. And again, it's different, different solutions for different companies, but having a, I guess, an advisor or a mentor who's been exactly. there, solved these problems, it yeah, helps them. I, I literally, you know, it's a, it's a fresh thing. So I can tell you in six months if it worked or not, but I think there's uh, there's something there to help people on a part-time basis um, and to, to help them improve, right? How, how can you test your new hypothesis? How can you go to the market? How can you uh, figure out a good way of capturing all the ideas that are flying around? Because a lot of people are, have these things about roadmap, you know, yeah, we're doing this, but we'd like to do the other thing, but we can't decide. And so how do you get to a point where you can decide, you know, how can you estimate better? Where are the things that you need to, well, what are the things that you need to scope out? What are the, th the unknowns? Where can you uh, complete more data? Where do you have to do user research? So, you know, help, help people really, really uh, get much better at this. Yeah, so awesome. that's, that's the goal, yeah. I think in our experience over the last two months since we set up TechRooter and the amount of newer early stage startups, brand new companies, uh, individuals setting up their own businesses, there seems to be like London is just buzzing with, with new ideas, new innovation. So it's quite exciting to see in the tech and product space that hopefully we will have uh, even more exciting tech companies coming up that obviously need product leadership as well as engineering leadership. So yeah, exciting times. It's very exciting at the moment. Yeah, London is great. I think Berlin is amazing. I think uh, Lisbon is coming up. Paris is amazing. There's a lot of places now for tech in Europe that are super exciting, I think. Cool. Awesome. Brilliant. Well, great having you, Christian. Uh, cool. Thanks, Thank you. Uh, thanks for being on the show. And, uh, and yeah, I hope uh, that gets people excited. <laughs> so, cool. Thanks. Uh, see you around in London. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Christian. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cool. Bye.